Matthew chapter number 26 is my text. I'm going to begin in verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and he drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put the sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Today I want to talk to you about overcoming the Judas kiss. Overcoming the Judas kiss. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you move by your power and most of all by your Holy Spirit? Would he be our teacher and guider and leader into all truth right now? Through him, would you speak to the hearts of every single person that is here or listening virtually in some capacity? We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. Well, today we begin to turn our attention to Passion Week. The week that changed the world, I call it the great eight. The eight greatest days in human history. Everything was changed because of these eight days. The destiny of mankind changed because of these eight days. It began on Palm Sunday, which we'll celebrate next week. This is when Jesus turned his face like a flint toward Jerusalem and he rode through its streets on a donkey being hailed by the hosannas of the people as Israel's king. Then came Monday when he changed over the money tables in the temple and proclaimed that his house would be called the house of prayer. On Tuesday, Judas cut a deal with the devil to sell him for 30 pieces of silver, the price of an Old Testament slave. On Wednesday, he mourned over Jerusalem and predicted his death on Friday. On Thursday, he ate the last supper with his disciples, served them communion, then agonized in the garden of Gethsemane as he sweat drops of blood. And as we just read, there he was arrested by a band of Roman soldiers led by his betrayer. On Friday, of course, he paid the ultimate price for our sin. He did this by drinking the cup of God's wrath and dying a criminal's death on a cruel cross as his devoted disciples watched in disbelief. And then came Saturday. The day of doubt. The day when his once very faithful disciples scattered in fear for their lives, pondering the question of a lifetime. If he was God, how did he die? I don't know about you, but I hate the Fridays and Saturdays of life. The times in life when things don't go the way that I've mapped out. The times in life when life becomes unpredictable. And the times in life that cause and that bring doubt and confusion and so on and so forth. Fridays can be difficult and Saturdays can be difficult. But here's what God wanted me to tell you this morning. That before every Sunday is always a Friday and a Saturday. In other words, if you're in the Fridays and Saturdays of life, in the words of the famous preacher, although it's Friday, Sunday. Is coming. Amen. The Passion Week. The eight days 
that changed the world. I know some of you may feel like we're pivoting hard from relationships to um, this series that I'm calling Defying the Urge to Quit. But this defying of the urge to quit is wrapped within relationship, wrapped within the relationship between Judas and Jesus. Judas and Jesus had a relationship that teaches us so much about defying the urge to quit. Let me give you a couple of quick hits as we kind of warm up our spirit to what God wants to say to us. How many of you know that the pathway to any great promise is paved with quitting points? That we don't just arrive at certain destinations without having to fight through to get to those places. And this is especially true of anything that is worthwhile in life. But it's especially true in the kingdom because the kingdom of God suffereth violence, but the violent take it by force. In other words, there is a clash when it comes to fulfilling the will of God. There is your desire to progress and then there's the enemy's desire to suppress. And so there's usually a clash between where I start out and where I wind up, there's usually quitting points before we get to the promise. And if you look at the first eight days or the eight days of Passion Week, Jesus had to crash through many quitting points. First, he had to crash through the emotions of the crowd lifting up their hosannas to him and him saying, well, this is the way it should be. My people should receive me. But then turning on a dime and calling out to crucify him, that was a quitting point. He then shows up in the temple, the place that's his house, and it's being uh, turned into a, a den of thieves because people are being dishonest with those that go there. That was a quitting point for Jesus. Then he had to face the sorrow of Jerusalem, the city that he came to save, who had rejected him. That was a quitting point. Who can forget the moment in the garden when he sweat drops of blood, facing the realization that he would become sin for you and I, and that God would turn his face and forsake him in that moment? That was a quitting point. He found his friends asleep when he needed them most. That was a quitting point. He watched Peter deny him three times. That was a quitting point. The cruelty of the crucifixion, which time does not allow me to deal with all of the quitting points. But how about the fact that they chose Barabbas, a criminal, over Jesus, a quitting point. The crown of thorns, a quitting point. The spit, the punches in the face, the shame, quitting point after quitting point. But I don't know about you, I am glad that Jesus, for us, crash through every quitting point so that you and I could have eternal life. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to understand that between or before every great promise, there are many quitting points along the way. Keep going. Second thing I want to share with you, number two, make sure you have the right motivation. Motivation is everything. If you get the wrong motivation, if you get a motivation that is fickle here today and gone tomorrow, oftentimes you can quit before you're crowned. But when you have the right motivation, it keeps you crashing through every single quitting point. What was Jesus' motivation? Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2 tells us, looking on to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and was sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before Jesus? It was you and I. 
We were his motivation. They didn't get Jesus. They didn't catch Jesus. They didn't trap Jesus. They didn't stop Jesus. Jesus allowed them to get him, allowed himself to be crucified because he had a motivation. His motivation was, I don't care what I have to go through. I'm going to crash through every one of these quitting points because my motivation is my creation. My motivation is their salvation. My motivation is their redemption. We were his motivation. What should our motivation? be. So many times in life, people have all sorts of motivations, some good, some bad, money, success, fame, family, all sorts of things that motivate us in life. But I found out that even the good things on that list can sometimes leave us kind of wanting. What is the motivation that we ought to anchor everything we do to? To hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Our motivation ought to be to please God. When you make your motivation in life to please God, it kind of takes care of a lot of other things. It affects a lot of other areas of your life. For instance, when you're ready to quit on your marriage, but your motivation is to please God, you stay in the marriage and you work out the situation that may cause you to want to quit on because you know that that pleases the Lord. When you're in business and you're tempted to go this way, you know that that doesn't please the Lord and so you're motivation is to please him so you stay the right way. When your motivation in life is to please the Lord, it'll cause you to crash through all of those quitting points, have the right motivation. But then number three, and these are just quick hits before we get into the text. Number three, decide to never, ever, ever give up. I, I told last night, I said, you need to decide before there is a decision. You need to decide before there is a decision. So what do you mean, how can I decide before there is a decision? Well, there are certain things in life that you ought to pre-know. For instance, I told, I told the church last night, I said, listen, I've decided I'm staying married until death do us part. I've already decided that. So I don't wait for there to be a decision in order to make that determination. I don't wait for there to be stress or tension or I've already decided that. I've already decided that on the first tenth of all of my increase, I'm going to give that to the Lord. So I don't wait to see are the bills this, are the bills that, are the bills the other thing. I've already made that decision. And so the pressures of life don't move me from the decision that I've already made. You've got to decide before there is a decision. And oftentimes what that does is it makes the decision easy. I've decided to live a life that honors and glorifies God. So when when a temptation comes my way that says, you know what, this doesn't glorify, I've already decided. Decide before there is a decision. And when you decide before there is a decision, you'll make the right decision almost every time. Almost every time, just because we're human, right? So you've got to decide now. Not when things are bad, but decide now to never, ever, ever give up. I'm not giving up. Do you know quitting oftentimes comes from the enemy? I'm not talking about your kid quitting the violin or quitting the baseball team because they don't like it. I'm talking about how the enemy tries to get us to quit on important things because if he can get us to quit, we'll never be crowned. And so the scripture tells us emphatically, Galatians chapter 6, verse number 9, let us not grow weary in well-doing for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. The battle to keep going, the battle defying the urge to quit. First Peter chapter five, verse number 10 says this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
Now, I, I just have to mention, because some people read that and get religious with it. They say, well, you see, God wants us to suffer. That's not what that verse is saying. That verse is saying that sometimes suffering is inevitable. We live in a fallen world. Suffering is going to come our way. But the suffering will never be stronger than the Savior who himself will see the suffering and then step into our situation and strengthen us and restore us and put things back in order in our life. In other words, put the emphasis on what the Savior can do, not what the suffering is going to do in your life. Prepare. Decide. In the famous words of Winston Churchill, never, never, never give up. God will give you the grace to keep grinding and crash through those quitting points. And when you decide that Christ is your motivation, you will never, never, ever give up. And eventually your season of suffering will give way to a season of blessing and breakthrough. Today I want to turn our attention to crashing through the quitting point of receiving the Judas kiss. Because nothing can kind of suck the uh, wind out of your sails like being betrayed. Betrayal is a, a big thing. Ever been betrayed? Ever had somebody who you were tight with, you thought had your back? You shared secrets with, you stood by, you did everything you could for. for. You thought they had your back only to find out that you had to remove the dagger from your back. We've all experienced on some level. Sometimes we've been in the place of being the betrayer. You know, there is forgiveness for betrayal as well. But Jesus was involved. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by somebody close. We've been looking for the last few weeks at the close relationship between Peter and Jesus. But the relationship between Jesus and Judas was also a close one. I want you to notice a few things. First of all, in our text, Matthew 26, verse 47, it says, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12. That's, that's a big phrase right there. One of 12. You know, the Cowboys just signed Dak Prescott. Big deal, $40 million for four years, whatever it was. Sometimes people are like, I can't believe these people get paid so much money. That's a crime. That's a sin. That's a this. That's Tell me you would say no. Hey, I want to give you $40 million a year. Nah, it's a little too much. Give it to somebody else. Come on, stop with it. All right, already? We're just jealous because nobody's offering us $40 million. All right? But the reason why he gets $40 million a year is because he is one of 32 people on the entire globe that can play at that level. And when you are one of the few, you're special. You're in a category, an elite Category. This is why it's so important, by the way, for you to perfect the gifts that God has given you. When God gives you a gift, it usually doesn't start out the way it should end up. Usually when God gives you a gift, that gift ought to grow with you over time. But oftentimes people don't grow their gift because they don't want to grind in perfecting their gift. Everybody wants everything easy to come to them. And so we miss out on the perfection of our gift, which puts us in elite company so that we can command the kind of stuff that everybody wants. That was just free and extra. But Dak, one of 32, special. Well, Judas, even more special. One of 12. Of not just people present at that time, but of all the people who have ever lived. Jesus enters time and space when Judas was alive. And could you imagine God at creation thinking about the billions and billions of people that he would create and that Judas would be one of the hand-picked 12. 
This was a close relationship. Moreover, we know from Scripture that Judas was the treasurer of Jesus' ministry. Somebody said, what do you mean treasurer? That means that Jesus' ministry had to have money. I thought Jesus was broke. You thought wrong. John chapter 13, verse number 29 says this very clearly. Judas had charge of the money. Verse number 29 in the NLT puts it like this. Since Judas was their treasurer. How many of you know you don't put just anybody in charge of the money? You don't just pick somebody off the street and go, ah, just be in charge of all my money. You know, let me know how it works out. You, you pick somebody who you have confidence in, who you can trust. And typically, when somebody is controlling money for an organization, the person who's in charge of the organization has a lot of conversations with the person who is in charge of the money. Many times there are things that are talked about and things that are shared, information that they are privy to that not anybody else is privy to. And so by virtue of his position, we can understand that there was a special bond between Jesus and Judas. And this was a relationship that Jesus handpicked, but that the devil came into in order to try to dissuade Jesus from fulfilling his destiny. Because there are some relationships in our life that are destiny assisters, and there are other relationships in our lives that are destiny twisters. And being able to navigate through those minefields of which relationships are positive and going to help us and which relationships the devil is trying to get in the middle of and try to destroy us is difficult work because our heart is often engaged in these kinds of relationships. So the devil tries to use this relationship to derail the destiny of Jesus. Satan has hated Jesus ever since he was born. Tried to get Herod to take him out when he was an infant. Then try to get him to jump off the pinnacle of the high point of the temple and kill himself. Then try to use religious people over and over throughout the life of Jesus to kill Jesus. And by the way, that's a message all by itself because we religious people will try to kill you. Seriously. And you ain't never been done wrong till you've been done by religious people because there's some kind of expectation that they ought to know better. There's some type of expectation that they'll operate with a measure of grace, especially being that they have been the recipients of grace. But that's a subject for another day. And so when he couldn't get Jesus through any of the means that he tried to kill him, he finally pulls out the big gun known as betrayal. And this was a hard betrayal. Because it was pre-planned and pre-meditated. It is one thing to do something by accident to betray somebody. But it is a whole other thing to pre-plan it and to pre-meditate it. It is evil from another world when you get to that place in life. Notice how pre-planned and pre-meditated the betrayal was. Verse number 48 says of our text, Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss... He is the one sees him. The word sign here literally means prearranged signal. In other words, this is something that they've talked about. This is something that they've got behind closed doors. Can you see Judas? He is posing as Jesus' friend, but planning his demise at the same time. He is staying on the inside just so he can get information, so he can give it to the enemies of Jesus, but he really has no plan in kind of helping Jesus. There's nothing worse than a poser in your life. And so this is what he is. He's talking, this is how it's going to go down. This is what we're going to do. And of all the ways, of all the signals that he can give, it's a kiss. Dude, why don't you just like go up to the guy and put your hand on his shoulder? Get close enough to him and just point. A kiss? That's the dagger being mm, turned in like that. 
And this word kiss literally describes a covenant relationship between two people that are very intimate with one another as they go through life. And as time evolved, the etymology of the word became a word to describe what transpires between a husband and a wife. That kind of intimacy, that kind of kiss, and that is the way that he chooses to betray Jesus. Think about this quitting point. Think about as Jesus has gone through everything. Think about the wound that Jesus is carrying at this moment in time. Think about his humanity. Think about how his emotions were attached to this. But not only that, verse number 47 of our text says, Judas brought with him a great multitude of people. And when you look at the other Gospels, you begin to get a big picture of who this great multitude was in John's Gospel. And by the way, sometimes when you want a full story, you have to kind of take little details from each Gospel and put it together. John's Gospel says, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came with lanterns and torches and weapons. The word band here literally tells us what kind of multitude this was. The word band describes the special ops of the Roman soldiers. They were the ones who were actually stationed in a tower, famous tower, that overlooked the temple. And the reason why they were there, and there was an underground, by the way, uh, trail to get to the temple, tunnel to get to the temple. And they were there in case there was an insurgency in the temple. And so these were the Navy SEALs of the day. They were the highest trained, the best equipped. And the word band here literally gives us a number. It literally means from three to six hundred of these soldiers getting ready to go and get Jesus. And notice what John says. They brought with them lanterns and torches and weapons. Why would they bring lanterns and torches and weapons? Well, first of all, it speaks to the depth of Judas' betrayal. He took him over to the side. He said, I've been around this guy. I've watched as other people have tried to get him. He slips away. And nobody ever knows where he is. I don't know what happens. He must go and hide somewhere, and nobody can find him. And so what do they do? They bring lanterns and torches. Why? Because they are going to try to look for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you know anything about Gethsemane, it's filled with caves. It is filled with trees, hiding places galore. And so they came out with the intent to look for Jesus until they found him, even if that meant all night. And there is a takeaway that we need to see here. And the takeaway is simply this, that sometimes the enemy will put an assignment on you all night. Sometimes the enemy will put an assignment on you where he is prepared to fight you for a long period of time. What must you do? What must we do during those times? Ephesians 6 tells us, having done all to stand, stand therefore. Can I tell you why the enemy sometimes defeats the church? Because the church has lost its ability to stand. And the reason why we've lost our ability to stand is because we don't stand in the weapons that God has given us. And so they take lanterns and torches. And notice, and weapons. What are these weapons? Well, they're the weapons of a Roman soldier outlined for us in Ephesians chapter 6. The best military weapons that they had at that time. This is a highly trained, highly organized group of people, but it's not just a band of soldiers. Notice the text in John says, and officers. Who are these officers? These are the police foot soldiers that guard the temple. 
And so together they make up this band. And what do they bring with them? These police foot soldiers. They bring swords and clubs. What are the swords? These are meant for close combat, to draw blood, to kill. And the clubs are literally just these wooden objects where they would beat you over the head and stun you. And so they come to Jesus with all of this weaponry, with all of this this military might. What do we see? What is the first key to crashing through quitting points? How does Jesus fight? Peter takes out his sword. He said, puts it away. Don't you know they that live by the sword will die by the sword. Here's how you overcome the Judas kiss. You fight back with better weapons. You don't grab the same weapons that they've turned on you. You don't do them the way that they've done you. You don't, you don't go through all of the ways that the world deals with these kind of things. Because why would you fight with those kind of weapons? Why would you fight with gossip back? Why would you fight with bitterness back? Why would you fight by trying to get people back when you and I have weapons? The Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Why would you fight with those kind of weapons when God has given you weapons that are much more more powerful. God has given you prayer and God has given you faith and God has given you the sword of the spirit and scriptures and the words of your mouth. Why don't you use the weapons that God has given you? Fight back with better weapons. But then I want you to see this. Judas brings this great multitude, highly trained soldiers and officers. Why? For, for, for one man? This speaks again to the depth of the betrayal. Because Judas gave them inside information. He said, you know all those stories you've been hearing about this guy? They're all true. I've never seen such power in a man. He opens blind eyes. He raises people from the dead. He tells storms to be still. And they listen. He heals lepers. He makes lame people walk. He walks on water. He multiplies food. He is a one-man army. I have never seen such power in any one man. If you're going to get this man, you better come with everything you got. As if they outpowered Jesus. (laughs) Remember, we're going to talk about this next week. Jesus said, I can call on a legion of angels right now. They didn't outpower Jesus. Jesus had motivation. His motivation was, I've got to allow this in this season so that I can get to the promise, so I can save my people. Here's what I want you to see. Second takeaway, if you're going to crash through quitting points, you need to realize you have God's power on your, on your side. The very same power that Judas saw up close and personal in Jesus, that very same power is on your side through every situation in life. Romans chapter 8 says, if God be for us, then who can be against us? Very literally, when the enemy comes to your doorstep, you can say, you and what army? Because you've got the army of God on your side. You've got the power of Jesus on your side. God is standing in your corner. How are you going to overcome the Judas kiss? You have God's power on your side. But notice again, the depth of the betrayal. Judas tells him, he slips away. Come prepared. He's got power. But notice, he takes them right to Jesus. And this is interesting because John's gospel, the 18th chapter, says it this way. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. 
For Jesus often met there with his disciples. This was a private place. This was a shared place. Nobody else knew this place except one of the 12. And what did Judas do? He shares even the intimate moments of their relationship with Jesus' enemy. Some of you are facing some serious quitting points. Life has converged and why and I don't understand. And and one of the things that happens when you're going through quitting points in life, because this is how the devil does us all, he gets us to question the care of God. Well, if God really cared, then why didn't he stop this? If God really cared, then why did he allow this? Where is God when this has been going on in my life? It's a question that the enemy puts in our heart. See, the enemy is dirty because he causes the confusion, and then he gets us to question God as if God caused the confusion. And in our hearts, we wrestle and we battle. But here's point number three. If you're going to crash through the quitting point of betrayal, you need to remember he did it all for you. The, the, the evidence of the passion belies any serious questions about whether God cares. Because why did God do everything he did? Why did Jesus go through everything that he went through? He cared enough to qu- crash through every one of those quitting points. The hosannas and his house being turned into a de- den of thieves. And the drops of blood in the garden. And his friends falling asleep on him. And Peter denying him. And all of the points of the crucifixion. Why did he do it all? Unless he cared. His care is something that ought to keep us going. Somebody once told me, when you can't trace God's hand, you can always trust God's heart. And what they were telling me was, listen, sometimes circumstances will happen in life. You won't have all the answers to. But one thing to always know, the heart of God always remains pure. That God always and in every situation has our absolute best interests in heart. He cares for me. And if I know that he cares for me, I know I can keep crashing through every quitting point. I don't need to understand everything. I don't always need to have the plan. But it makes my heart feel good when I know that he knows the plans that he has for me. And I trust that they are plans to prosper me and not to harm me and give me a bright future. And if I know he knows, I'm good with that. The last thing I want to share with you, last word of encouragement, Pastor, how do I crash through the quitting points in my life, especially of betrayal? You need to realize the quitting point of betrayal can be overcome. That betrayal doesn't have to be the last thing. It doesn't have to have the final say. And I want to share a personal story with you. I've shared the story before, but um, it's my testimony, so... I don't think your testimony should always be shared once. But I did have to pick the betrayal story because there's been, unfortunately, more than I care to uh, call to remembrance that have happened in my life. But can I just say something? It's part of the journey. If Jesus was betrayed, it's part of the journey. I've also recognized that when betrayal strikes, it means I'm getting a push further into my destiny. Because your enemy, God will use... God will use, I'm getting ahead of myself, God will use even your enemy to push you into your destiny. Judas pushed Jesus into his destiny. Joseph's brothers pushed Joseph into his destiny. When you walk with God, God will use everything to push you into your destiny. And so 12 years ago, I experienced one of those life-marking moments of betrayal. 
my dearest friend, my best friend, stole a lot of money from me, business that we had started. And um, it was one of those dark seasons of the soul. We lost everything. We lost all the money that we had up to that point in life. We lost our house. Our reputation was taking hits because people actually questioned whether I was innocent or not innocent. They just had all sorts of motives were going on. And I thought, you know what, God, we not only lost everything personally, but we're probably going to lose the ministry as a result of this, even though I've done nothing wrong. And in that season of life, it was so, so, so challenging. It seemed like betrayal had really dealt a death blow. But can I tell you what emerged from that season? What emerged from that season is I wrote a best-selling book turn it around that I shared my story with the world to help other people through that season I became or I began to write worship songs that became became the foundation to what we now call faith worship the last album of which topped the charts on iTunes more to come on that through that season God opened the door for me to host TBN worldwide through that season we launched our New York City campus through that season my faith although it was being challenged got stronger and stronger the anointing on my life got stronger and stronger. And what the enemy meant to take me down, God used to take me to the next level. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that betrayal can be overcome in your life. And I want to just declare that over your life. You can overcome the betrayal of anything in your life. You can overcome a financial betrayal, a family betrayal, a health betrayal. You can overcome a quitting point of any sort in your life, a health quitting point, a marriage quitting point, a quitting point where you lose a loved one, you can overcome all of those things. And here's what I want you to know for sure, that the God of heaven sees every one of these quitting points and struggles. And the God of heaven is so committed to each and every one of us that on the other end of those quitting points, usually there is an enormous blessing. I've learned something about God. I've learned that God is a God of recompense, that he loves to not just repay us for our trouble, but there's a promise in the scripture that says that God will give us double for our trouble. And so I want to declare over you, you can overcome the quitting points that are in your life. Stay faithful to God. Would you stand to your feet?